Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Well, it was one of the top political stories of the week, the two-night extravaganza for the Democratic debates. We were joined by Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, who spoke to us right after the debates ended from the Democratic debate spin room. Glad to be joining you from a, a room with a few hundred people and almost <laughs> 10 candidates. Oh, my God. We got through it. There was two nights, obviously 20 candidates, two hours each debate session. That is a lot to get through. The big moment, I think, across both nights was the exchange between Kamala Harris and Joe Biden when she was pressing him on uh, you know his praise with working with segregationists and, and his stance on busing. We'll get to that in a moment. Let's take it in order. Night one, who were the winners and losers? I thought Senator Warren did a great job. No harm there. Senator Cory Booker, he just looked good. I thought he did good. Amy Klobuchar also looked pretty good. Julian Castro, though, I think he took it. He had that standout moment when he was fighting with Beto O'Rourke over immigration. And I think Beto O'Rourke kind of lost points over the whole night. How did you see it? I really do agree with you that Julian Castro did have really one of the best nights. He told reporters on Thursday morning that he had his best fundraising night, that there were clear signs that the public was responding to the performance that he gave. And he really said to us when we talked to him that it was about being himself, that he didn't try too many rehearsed lines. He criticized some of his opponents is acting like cartoon characters when they get onto the debate stage and said he just went out there, answered questions. Yeah, he's soft-spoken sometimes, but he felt like he was just direct and clear and that that really resonated. He needs to qualify still for the September debate. It's enough donors and enough polling to be able to do so. And so he really thinks that this debate performance on Wednesday night is going to give him the boost he needs to stay in this race for months longer. Let's take a quick listen to the exchange, part of the exchange that he had with Beto O'Rourke. Hey, Bethel, I think it's a mistake, and I think that, that if you truly want to change the system, then we got to repeal that section. If not, Thank you. then it might as well be the same let, policy. Let, let, me, let me respond to this very briefly. Actually, as a member of Congress, I helped to introduce legislation that would ensure that we don't criminalize those who are seeking asylum and refuge I'm in this country. If you're about, fleeing, if you're fleeing desperation, asylum, then I'm I'm I want to make about, sure, I'm I want to make sure that you're treated with respect. Obviously, uh, immigration, a huge issue for Julian Castro, but also for Beto O'Rourke. And he just showed a better mastery and knowledge of some of the issues. And Beto O'Rourke just kind of flailed a little bit through that exchange. As Castro said, he did his homework and it it showed on the debate stage that he just had a firmer grasp of the policy that was being debated, that he understood the issues and the underlying issues and that he was comfortable talking about them. You know, this is a race that has been more policy heavy than almost anyone we have seen before. Look at Elizabeth Warren and her reams and reams of policy proposals. But it's not just about having proposals on paper. It's about being able to talk about them when 20 million people are watching in a one minute answer. And I think that's what we saw on Wednesday night between Castro and Beto, uh, one who could really take that policy and give a quick and easy to understand answer, while another one who struggled and looked at times a bit lost or confused about what he was talking about. Yeah, there was tons of swipes over the two days against the president 
But you're right. There was a lot of still policy discussions and they were trying to get those points across as best as they could. Okay. Let's move on to night two because there was a lot of fireworks there. That's why that's where, you know, four of the top five front runners were placed right there. And I felt like, I mean, it was really, that was the show. It was Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, and Pete Buttigieg. Kamala Harris obviously stood out very strong. She had that prosecutorial stance and she was very tough against former Vice President Joe Biden. We saw Harris really take it to Joe Biden. She went hard. She interjected herself into a discussion, which, you know, was also a great moment for her. As they were talking about race, she said, hey, look, as the black woman on stage oh, yeah. she alluded. She uh, shut, she shut Todd to down at that moment. Shut it down and then made the conscious choice to turn and begin attacking Joe Biden on his history and on his comments earlier this month about race. We have a short clip of that. Let me play that just so we can follow up on that after. You know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. Vice President Biden, do you agree today, do you agree today that you were wrong to oppose busing in America then. No, Do you agree? I did not oppose busing in America. What I opposed is busing ordered by the Department of Education. Yeah, at that moment, I mean, everybody really tuned in heavy because it, it got very serious. It got very personal as well for Kamala. It did. She was masterful in prosecuting him. This is a complicated history. If we look at Joe Biden's voting records, the legislation he sponsored his 36 years in the United States Senate, he was one of the biggest champions of civil rights and equal rights legislation. But she zeroed in on his one biggest vulnerability, his opposition to the way busing was handled, particularly in his home state of Delaware. And really use that to make the case that he was disqualified. She didn't use that word, but really went after him hard on that front. That's going to be talked about for days to come. Aside from that, former Vice President Joe Biden has been the leader, double-digit lead in polls. Everybody knew he was going to get attacked on, on multiple fronts, and he did field some of those. This was the biggest one, I think. How did he do overall? I feel like he just kind of remained flat. He didn't rise any higher Maybe he dipped a little lower with this exchange from with Kamala, but I feel like he was just kind of flat. You know, we'll have to wait and see how the voters respond. That's really what's going to matter. But I think he did have some strong moments. Harris really just had the strongest moments. Yeah. So when we pair them up, he looks deficient. But if we also look when he was sort of challenged by Eric Swalwell, who pointed to a quote Biden had made in the 80s talking about handing the torch over when Biden was then a young man. Biden came back and said, I'm not done with the torch. <laughs> that was one of my Forced favorite Lincoln. moments right there. Uh, we have that yeah. Eric Swalwell clip too. I just wanted to play it just because it was a kind of funny moment from that debate right there. I was six years old when a presidential candidate came to the California Democratic Convention and said, it's time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans. That candidate was then Senator Joe Biden. Joe Biden was right when he said it was time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans 32 years ago. He's still right today. Swalwell only spoke four minutes total in that whole debate. Really didn't get much out. 
But even trying to point to that generational divide and everything with with, uh, how old Joe Biden is. And your listeners can't see it because they're not viewers. But as he was saying this, the split screen showed that Biden had a big smile on his face. Gave a really forceful response after that. I actually think Biden took that exchange and was able to capitalize on it at the end of it and come out the better for it. So he had moments. It wasn't all bad for him, I think, today. I think if we're going to look at someone who didn't really come through that surprised us, that would be Bernie Sanders. We didn't hear anything new from him. Same old Bernie. big portions of the debate, he seemed to sort of fade into the background. I totally agree. It was Bernie from 2016 all over again. Still got a lot of applause for some of his major points, but it was all about political revolution, Wall Street, you know, the same exact stuff. So we'll see how that develops. Uh, Another standout moment that I thought was kind of interesting was from Pete Buttigieg. And the honesty, it seemed that he was portraying when they were talking about diversity in the police force. Obviously, there was a shooting there that happened not too long ago. And the police force is only 6% black in a city that's 26% African American. You can really feel the honesty, I felt, saying, you know, I just couldn't get it done there. Did he get out of this kind of Beto O'Rourke mode where... Beto came across really not much substance. How did Mayor Pete Buttigieg fare on this front? We all knew going into this debate that Buttigieg's real asset, the thing that he brought to campaigns, is his ability to think on his feet, to have a presence on a debate stage or on a stage at all. We really saw his campaign take off after he did that CNN town hall where he got a lot of attention and a lot of praise for how he handled questions in front of a live audience. I think you're right. I think that he did do what Beto couldn't do and really seized on this debate. We saw that answer. It came off as very authentic and it didn't sound like he was trying to apologize or make this go away. He said, look, I just, I didn't get it done. I failed. It was an acknowledgement and a stark contrast, I think, than sort of the reality we're living in with the current administration and the current White House that never admits to doing anything wrong. Democrats have said that they don't want their own Donald Trump. And I think we're seeing that repeatedly, especially when you see answers like that. There's constant tap dancing going on in politics. And that was just as straightforward as you can get. And he turned it into a call to action. He said, yeah, I failed, but this is what I want to work on. So I don't know. I just felt really good about that answer. And I really appreciated that. Over the course of the two nights, what were the main issues that Democrats are bringing up? As I said, there was a lot of swipes about the president, but there was a lot of policy going on. I saw a lot about health care, a lot about immigration, a lot about the economy. The candidates were bringing up the economy's only gotten better for the top slice of people, not for everybody else. And the economy was a big issue. We saw both nights of the debate start with a discussion about the economy and who the economy is working for. There was an interesting exchange with Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, which I think many of us here at the debate thought was going to set up a night of clashes. And that was kind of the it of the two of them. But Bernie really admitting that his health care proposal would mean raising taxes on the middle class and Biden coming back and saying, if taxes are raised in the middle class, people won't be able to sustain that, even if there is more access to health care. So there really was a lot of discussion about how the middle class and poor people in America are continuing to struggle in this economy. I would say the other big policy issue was health care. Yeah. You mentioned that. But Nobody agreed saw- on anything. Everybody was all over the place. Medicare for all. How do you pay for it? We still want private insurers. I mean, that one was kind of hard to wrap my head around. 
there was a lot of discussion about health care and about not just what policies should the Democratic Party embrace around health care and is it Medicare for all and what does a buy-in option look like, but also what does it mean about the future and the core of their party when they have this discussion? Just how liberal are Democrats? Just how far are they willing to go? And how much they think the American public is willing to embrace and accept. And that was a strain that that crossed over both nights in that healthcare debate. It seemed pretty clear over the course of two nights who the front runners are, why they are the front runners. They just have a lot of uh, experience, a lot of policy behind them. Pete Buttigieg, not that much, but he's still there, very charismatic, and, and that honesty that is really refreshing. At this point, it's only the first debate. We still have 20-plus candidates. There's Some people obviously didn't make the debate. At this moment, with this such a long way to go, who looks ready to take on President Trump right now? I think we saw a number of candidates who demonstrated an ability to take on President Trump. What we saw in these last two nights was a debate inside the party about how to take on Donald Trump. And they didn't really say that explicitly, but that's the underlying point. Is it about running after him with as much policy as they could? Is it about getting the base, the most liberal of their party, the most excited? Is it about winning those sort of moderate voters that had voted for Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump? And that's a debate that I think Democrats are going to keep having before they decide who they think the best candidate to take on Trump is. So who's our top three then after this, after oh. the two days, who's our top three? Oh, Oscar, don't make me do that. Um, <laughs> I, I think that what case could be made for any in the top five, you know, right. Bernie, Biden, Harris, Warren, Buttigieg, they all could make their case and probably five or six more. And so I'm not going to be the one to start picking winners. And <laughs> I'm, losers just trying to, I'm just trying to nail you on something, but you know, you're right. I think they, they all remain strong. There is a few that uh, could potentially rise up even further. And then there's those obvious few that, you know, after the first debate, they should probably start stepping away just so we can get into some more serious stuff. But we'll have to do this all over again in a month, I think. So we'll get to it. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joining us live from that spin room after the debate. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. One of the other top political news stories of the week It really is the moment the Democrats have been waiting for. Robert Mueller, the special counsel, will testify before two House committees in back-to-back open sessions. It's going to be must-see TV, and it's going to be happening on July 17th. We spoke to Darren Samuelson, senior reporter at Politico, for how this will all play out. And then the other cast of characters that Democrats want to interview all of the prosecutors that worked on Mueller's team. This is definitely going to be one of the biggest hearings I've watched, and I think everyone who has been covering and following Washington politics for a long time, I mean, this is definitely one of the biggest hearings. I've been in Washington for almost 20 years now, so I I would say this is right up there at the very top. We'll be looking very closely to see whether Robert Mueller provides additional details beyond his report that he released back in April. He has said he will not go beyond the scope of that. You just never know in a congressional hearing when members are asking questions in rapid fire succession, what details might drip out. We know it's going to be an all-day affair. I believe it's, uh, I'm not sure the order yet, but I know it's going to be the House Judiciary Committee will be in the room, and then when they're finished, the House Intelligence Committee will take over. I'm actually not sure the order if it's one intelligence first and then judiciary second, but those two committees will will basically be substituting into the exact same room, but taking their turns with Robert Mueller. So you're going to have good 60, 70, 80 members of Congress, ultimately, when it's all said and done, getting chances to ask questions. I don't know if the time limits have been set yet, but there usually are time 
time limits for how long each member will get with the chairman, obviously getting, you know, the most amount of time for both committees. So that'll be Jerry Nadler and Doug Collins for the Republicans. And then over on the uh, Republican side, watching to see how Adam Schiff handles things and Devin Nunes and the Intelligence Committee on the Republican side handles things. What are Republicans going to be doing? What is their focus going to be during this testimony? Republicans are going to follow the script of sort of going after Mueller on the origins of the investigation, the people that he brought on to his team and the Democratic campaign contributions that they've been harping about for a long time. They'll be talking about whether or not Robert Mueller used the steel dossier to use to fuel, to chase down leads and whether that was on the up and up. The FISA warrant process, so the surveillance that was done by the FBI. I think those are the lines of questions I'm going to push on. I don't know if Robert Mueller is going to really engage all that much on those questions, but I think that's what the Republicans will, maybe they're going to use their five minutes time, each one of them, to just make speeches. Lawmakers right. love to make speeches rather than actually ask questions. So <laughs> if that's the case and they do just kind of speechify, I think Mueller's just going to sit there and let them do it and, and you know, okay, um, you know, do you have a question there, sir? And if there is no question, then, you know, we move on to the next lawmaker. Right. We've actually seen that in some of the previous hearings without Robert Mueller sitting there where, where members from both sides, especially I've seen it from the Republicans quite a bit, too. They'll speechify and there is no question. And then we just move on to the next lawmaker. Right. And Democrats, obviously, we know where they're at. They want to shift public sentiment on this whole thing and, and talk a lot about obstruction. Even the Russian collusion part, but I know they want to talk a lot about obstruction. One of the other interesting things about this is a, a story you wrote for Politico about Mueller's team. A lot of these people have started moving back into uh, private life. They're moving on to a lot of other law firms, but Democrats might want to be talking to them too, especially after Robert Mueller is going to be testifying because all these other lawyers that were working with him, they were doing a lot of the footwork too. They were interviewing a lot of the key people. And Democrats want to know what they know now. The worker bees of the Mueller team, Trump enabled them the angry Democrats. But these are some very schooled, very experienced prosecutors who come from all walks of the Justice Department's ranks over the last many decades. And Mueller used them to great effect to, you know, to prosecute Paul Manafort and Rick Gates and Michael Flynn and Roger Stone with a trial still to come. The Russian operatives, intelligence officers who actually led the 2016 data manipulation social media campaign, you know, those are charges that were brought by these people. And these are also the people who interviewed all of the Trump aides as they were building the obstruction of justice, part of the report and ultimately making the decision not to prosecute the president because of longstanding Justice Department guidelines that said you really can't indict a sitting president. So I'm talking about some names that your listeners might have heard over the course of the last two years, like Andrew Weissman, who is now back at the New York University School of Law, who's actually He's the one who just recently reportedly inked a book deal to write about his. Yeah, he's uh, going to be interesting. He's the one that by writing a book, I think he's opened himself up to being called in a little bit more so than others. You've actually heard from Democrats who say, all right, if this guy's writing a book, you know, he's got to talk to us just as much as what he's putting down in this book. And I mean, you know, what's interesting also with this hearing coming up is some of these deputies are going to be accompanying Mueller to the hearings. And Adam Schiff, the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, did say that he expects to actually be interviewing some of them. He didn't name who it is, which deputies, but he expects the deputies will be with them and, and there's going to be a closed door interview that will take place with some of them. Whether the Democrats then call them back separately later on after this July 17th Mueller hearing is sort of a to be determined question. But these are the people who definitely know where the bodies are buried and the Democrats will turn to them for not only the investigative leads, I think, but also legislative solutions, how to take everything that we learned from the Mueller investigation and actually turn it in ways to not let this happen again right. in future elections. And also the actual Mueller existed under a regulation in the Justice Department that came out of the Ken Starr era and the Bill Clinton 
Clinton impeachment. It's an internal Justice Department regulation that allows for these special counsels like Robert Mueller. And there's seriously been talk about, you know, what can Congress do? What can the Justice Department do to reform the way those regulations are written for future investigations? I don't know that we're ever going to experience anything quite like what just happened in the last two years, but the regulations themselves, if we do end up in a scenario similarly going forward, are we comfortable with the actual underlying Justice Department guideline that says the sitting president? Right. Presidential candidates even talk about how they would try and change that. It's all going to start on July 17th when Robert Mueller testifies. It's going to be must-watch TV. Darren Samuelson, senior reporter at Politico, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.